Well, good morning, Grace Point. It is uh, so nice to be back with you again. It's been uh, a couple of years since I've had the opportunity to be here. And uh, thanks to Pastor Tim and Pastor Joel for the opportunity to take a few minutes with you this morning uh, in the Word of God. Uh, And thank you, worship team, for uh, preparing our hearts. As we continue in worship, we're going to turn in the Word of God this morning to John chapter 12, and we're going to be uh, spending our time taking a look at the authentic Christian life, authentic Christian living. As you're making your way to that passage, again, John chapter 12, if you're not familiar with uh, the scriptures, We're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the fourth gospel. I'm sure it would not take long for us if uh, we just paused this morning and, and would think back to an individual who's had an impact on our life that has changed us dramatically. Of course, we've been singing about the dramatic change that takes place in a person's heart, the work of, of Christ on the cross, and consequently then the Spirit infecting our lives and changing us from the inside out. But with regard to people, who are some of those individuals that pop in your mind right away who have had a huge impact on who you are today? I'll bet it didn't take long for... Someone, it may have been a friend or a family member or perhaps one of your pastors or a teacher. Someone has had a huge impact on you. Now, let me change the question just a little bit. Can you think of a Bible character that you have known or you have studied in some depth and you've taken a look at their lives and you realize that the things in this person's life have taught me so much? Can you answer that question silently this morning? Can you think of that person in Scripture that, wow, that individual's life was so beneficial? Now, it might surprise you this morning if I were to tell you that one of the people in Scripture who have impacted my life the most is one of the most least talked about people in the Word of God. I'm going to say his name out loud, so don't cringe. I think with regard to all of the studies that I've done in 35 years of ministry, years ago, a study that I did on the life of Judas changed me dramatically. Let's pray, and then I'll tell you why. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to worship you in song. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you in prayer, to worship you in giving, and to continue our worship of you in the word. Father, may these things that we talk about this morning 
just speak to our heart. We implore you. We beg you to use the Spirit of God this morning to help us in this this journey which we call the Christian life. Realizing that in each of us there are parts of our lives that we're still working on. And you know that, and so do we. And so we thank you for that chance this morning to be transparent and hopefully to be authentic in talking with others about where we are and where you need to help us change our lives. And yes, Father, we ask that you might help us to learn uh, through the eyes of some characters in the pages of Scripture who are least likely to help us. And so, Father, we ask uh, that you would be at work this morning in our hearts, in our lives, to bring about the change you desire. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Messiah, the name above all names. Amen. Why Judas? Why Judas? I think most of you would probably be surprised at how much detail there really is given about the life of Judas in the Scriptures. The problem is we don't like to talk about Judas because of who he is and what he represents. We know some very fundamental things about Judas. We know that he was the only one of the twelve who shipwrecked his faith. We know that his betrayal was one of the darkest moments in the history of Christendom. We know that his, his name is synonymous with treachery. We also know that when it came to that special time of wanting to select a name for our children, if it was a male, I can guarantee pretty much that Judas was not on the list as a possibility. I have never in my lifetime... Almost 60 years, I have never met anyone named Judas. In fact, the only individual that I met was not human, but as a dog, a Doberman pincer. And he was named Judas, and rightly so. Because every time you turned your back on him, he would take a little nip out of the back of you. He just could not be trusted. Judas is just someone that we don't talk about. And yet I was surprised at how much the Scriptures had to say about him. And so I studied his life. I thought, there are things to be learned about the one who who walked with the Master, who walked with the Son of God for some period of two and a half to three years, and yet chose to betray him, to turn his back on him. How could it come to that? And as I studied the life of Judas, this is what I discovered that bothers me. I'm more like Judas than I really want to admit to you this morning. You see, every time I do something deceitful, I do the work of Judas. 
Every time I have a hidden motive, a hidden agenda, I do the work of Judas. Every time I tell a lie, I do the work of Judas. Every time I show some aspect of greed, I do the work of Judas. Every time I pretend to be inauthentic, I pretend to be authentic, but in my heart of hearts, I know that I really am not the person who I ought to be. I am just like Judas. And when I look into the mirror of the Word of God and I see those things about me looking back at me, as James 1 suggests, it bothers me that my life is somewhat like Judas. Now in this James 12 passage, we have recorded here the very first time that we're introduced to Judas where he actually speaks. And I want to suggest to you this morning, very simply, the point that I'm trying to drive home from this passage is that God wants us to live an authentic Christian life. He wants us to live an authentic Christian life. That means that I ought to be the same kind of person in any context with anyone. That what I say and speak ought to be in harmony. They ought to correlate. Now in the context of this passage, just very quickly, Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. And Jesus was very aware of the fact that the Sanhedrin had been convened and and they had, in chapter 11, the previous chapter, it was very clear that they plotted to take his life. And in fact, if you look at the last verse of chapter 11, right before we begin to read chapter 12, it says that the chief priests and the Pharisees gave an order that if anyone found out where Jesus was... He should report it so that they might arrest him. So now chapter 12 opens as the curtain is raised, and we discover that Jesus is in the town of Bethany. It was one of his favorite places to stay. And he is just two miles southeast of the city of Jerusalem. It was a common place where he would retreat to spend time with people he loved, namely Lazarus, Martha and Mary, the siblings. And so it was his intention to spend the night with them and to enjoy some time together in this dinner, during this dinner that was given in his honor. I don't want to take a lot of time talking about the place. Let me just simply say that the home is identified in Mark's gospel as the home of Simon the leper. Now, this sends scholars scurrying, trying to figure out how this all fits together. And frankly, we can't be sure. There are some possible theories. Maybe the home where Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived now was too small to host a dinner, to have a dinner party. Many scholars believe that Martha may well have been a widow. And it's quite possible that she was a widow because her husband, Simon, had died as a leper. 
Now, of this I'm relatively sure. No good Pharisee, just a few days before the Passover is beginning, no good Pharisee is going to run the risk of going to the home of a leper and defiling himself, making him ceremonially unclean, which meant then that he would not be able to participate in the Passover feast. And so we might also say that it's possible that they went to this place because no one would come searching for Jesus there. Whatever the case, this is the story, the narrative that unfolds in chapter 12. Give attention to the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now notice the next verse, 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And here ends the reading of God's word. Now let's work our way through this passage and break it down into a couple of smaller pieces that are bite-sized. The first part of the passage talks about the dinner that was given in Jesus' honor. It tells us that in verse 2. Martha was busy as usual. She was serving the meal. Lazarus and the other guests were reclining with Jesus. And Mary was about to assume her favorite position at the feet of Jesus. Now, there are three times that we find Mary at the feet of Jesus. In Luke 10, she sat at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he said. In fact, it was the last time that I was here, which I'm sure that all of you remember, that it was on that occasion that I preached from that particular passage in Luke 10, where we talked about Martha, Martha. The words of Jesus as he rebuked her for her busyness and that she had missed the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus like her sister did. And then we find again Mary at the feet of Jesus in the previous chapter when her brother died. And it says that she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. And here we are on this third occasion. And we find Mary once again at the feet of Jesus. 
Now, she was about to become the second woman who was going to anoint the feet of Jesus. Sometimes folks get that confused. Now, the first occasion when Jesus was anointed was at the beginning of his ministry up in the Galilee, and it was also in the home of a man named Simon. That's where the confusion comes in. But that was Simon the Pharisee. And on that occasion, there was a whole group of religious leaders who were there, and a dinner was given, Jesus was invited, and a sinful woman anointed Jesus' feet. Here at the end of Jesus' ministry, they're in the home of Simon the leper. And now it's not an unclean woman who is anointing the feet of Jesus, but a woman who got it. She understood that this was an important act of worship because it seems that she really believed in the resurrection and the life that Jesus had spoken of. The custom of anointing was very common in that day. Rabbis were often anointed as um, special guests when they would attend a, uh, a wedding, a wedding feast, a, uh, a scented oil. Uh, usually olive oil was poured often on the head uh, to anoint special guests. Uh, special guests at banquets were often anointed in the same way. And this passage in particular tells us that this perfume or this ointment that was going to be used on Jesus was an expensive perfume. It was called a pint of pure Nard. Now, it came from a root all the way from the land of India, this spike nard as we refer to it today. It was prepared from the roots and the stems of a plant, and it was often used for those who were going to be buried. Uh, the text says that she took about a pint of this expensive perfume, poured it on Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Very, very expensive perfume. The fragrance bottled in those days in an alabaster jar. Now, if we talk about an alabaster jar today... This is what an alabaster jar looks like. In the days of Jesus, this is what an alabaster jar looks like. This is about a year old. This was dated by archaeologists from 1450 to 1550 B.C. Now that's even older than Pastor Tim. And the spike nard would be placed in this tube or cylinder, this alabaster jar, and all you have to do is just, you can smell Hope you're not allergic to that. Maybe I should have asked first. Just even without opening it, you can catch the scent of it. 
Now, a few years ago, I did a little bit of research to find out. It says it was an expensive perfume. And so I wanted people uh, to understand what, what we were talking about. And so I, I, I did some research a few years ago, and I found, um, I called a department store, and, and I called and asked them, I said, what's the most expensive perfume that you have? And they said, well, sir, we have something called champagne. And I said, how much? I said, we we're talking about the same thing. I do have the cosmetics department, right? And they said, yes. And, and, and so they said, we have champagne that is available. And um, sir, that, and of course, I had to ask the price. And I said, well, how much does, does the champagne cost? And she said, well, she said, we have champagne available for $85. Oh, I said, that's not bad. And then she said, for a quarter of an ounce. For a quarter of an ounce. Now, I don't know if you can really see this or not. That's about a quarter of an ounce. If you can see it sparkling in there, that's a half-ounce bottle, and it's about half full or half empty, depending on what kind of mood you're in this morning. Uh, I don't remember the name of this. But it's uh, flammable. I... <laughs> Anyhow, so I did the calculation because the archaeologists said that most of these alabaster jars that they found were about 12 ounces in size. It would hold 12 ounces of perfume. So I did the math very quickly, and I thought, if, if Mary was to buy a 12-ounce alabaster jar of spikenard, it would have cost her 40 thousand and eighty dollars. So last night, just for fun, I wanted to go back on the internet and I, and I wanted to check again just to see how the price of perfume has changed because I'm so interested in that. <laughs> and I was surprised at a couple of things that I found. I, I found this, this list of the top 10 most expensive perfumes. Top 10, now listen gentlemen, because this could be the key to your success during this holiday season. Okay? Uh, I, I found Chanel number five on the list. That's only $1,850 for a jar. And I, it didn't look like a 12-ounce bottle to me. And then I got to number two. Number two on the list was Clive Christian number one. $2,150 is the highest price perfume in the year 2008, okay? But now, Clive, oh, he really outdid himself. Clive created something called imperial majesty. Now listen to this. He made 10 bottles of it. 10 bottles of it. I won't even waste your time trying to guess. 215 thousand dollars a bottle. Ten of them in the world. So I just, I, I bought nine of them right away. <laughs> I, I'm not a perfume guy. You know, I'm one of those guys who buys like a 55-gallon drum of the kind of stuff and says go out back when you need to, to, to refill. You know, I don't know anything about perfumes, but this was an expensive perfume. It was so expensive that it was something that was usually a once-in-a-lifetime purchase, and it was purchased for the sake of anointing people 
on special occasions. Most often, it was one of the spices, one of the perfumes that was used in the burial process. Now, there are a couple of principles I'd like to suggest to you as we move along here quickly. I want to suggest to you that worship, this was an act of worship for Mary. And if we're going to live authentically, we have to understand that God is very interested in our worship. And that authentic worship will be costly. Authentic worship will be costly. We don't have the time to turn to the passage, but just jot down, if you're a note taker, you may want to jot down 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel 24 is a passage where David, King David, sins against God. And the reason, um, the purpose of that sin um, we're not exactly sure of, but what he did was he numbered his, his counting troops. He, he wanted to know how many military forces he had, how many troops were in the 12 tribes. And, and uh, God was not pleased with that, and God said, and it's a fascinating passage for you to look at, because God says, it's the only time that I know that God did this. He said, I'm going to give, tell David, I'm going to give him three choices for his punishment. Three choices. And the first choice was that he could have three years of famine in the land, or could he, he could have three months of fleeing from his enemies, or there could be a plague in the land for three days. Bottom line, David said, I'll take option number three. On that day, for those three days during that period, 70,000 people died. David was so distraught. And he goes, and you may recall that he buys the threshing floor of a man by the name of Arunah. It was, uh, he was a Jebusite. In fact, it is now part of what we call today the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And David builds an altar there. But the thing that was significant was that Arunah wanted to give David the land, and he wanted to give him the oxen, and he wanted to give him the threshing sledges. And he said, take these. He said, build an altar and and kill the oxen and, and burn them as the burnt offering on the altar. Use the threshing sledges. They were wood. And slice them up, break them up, use them as the firewood. And David says this, and I'm sure this is what you'll remember. David said, no, I'll pay full price. I'm paraphrasing. But David said, I will not offer to the Lord something that costs me nothing. You see, authentic worship is costly. Authentic worship is going to cost us something. If our lifestyle reflects the kind of authenticity of being a living sacrifice... That's going to be a costly venture. So the text says that Mary broke the the seal of the jar. She poured some of the perfume, first of all, on his head. It tells us that in Matthew and Mark. And then on his feet. And customarily, it were the servants who would dry the feet of the guests when they arrived at at a banquet. But Mary went far beyond what was expected. 
And she anointed the feet, and then she used her hair as a towel to dry his feet. Now, we know that a woman's hair was her glory, and her hair was seldom, very, very seldom was it ever let down in public, only at home. But such a gift was a worthy expression of her gratitude and her deep devotion and her profound love for the guest of honor that night. But things continued, and uh, what happens is a disturbance in the middle of the passage. Enter Judas. Judas disrupted the dinner. Judas was the initiator of the disturbance. In fact, as I mentioned, these were the first words of Judas mentioned anywhere in the four Gospels. But what may surprise you, but what you need to know, was that while Judas was the one who spoke up, the rest of the disciples quickly followed Judas' lead in the criticism of what Mary had just done. In Mark and Matthew's Gospel, It says that when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, is what they asked. Now, here I find a second principle that's helpful for us. If we're going to live authentically as Christians, that sometimes, even when our motives are pure, we're going to be criticized and opposed. You know, doesn't it seem fair that if I'm doing the right thing, I shouldn't be criticized for it? In a perfect world, that would be nice. But when you do the right thing and are criticized for it, that just doesn't sit well with most of us. So even when our motives are pure... It it still doesn't release us from the possibility that we could be criticized or face opposition. You see, her labor of love and her personal sacrifice brought harsh judgment. It was a, a painful treatment by the rest of the disciples toward her. And it wasn't just Judas. The rest of the disciples jumped on Judas' bandwagon. The problem was, the rest of the disciples didn't know what the root of Judas' issue was. But the text tells us. Everyone seemed to agree, from their vantage point, that it would have been much better to sell the perfume, take the proceeds, and use it to feed the poor. And that would make a lot of sense because it would feed a lot of poor people. But Judas' issue was one of monetary loss because of his greed. Verse 6 exposes the true motives behind him and behind this challenge that he levels toward Mary. And while he pretended to be zealous, he was masking his his charity uh, to cover over his selfish greed. He didn't really care about the poor. He just saw one more opportunity for dishonest gain to slip through his fingers. 
Now, it's interesting, the, the word that the Scriptures record to describe Judas. It, it describes him as a thief. Now, a thief is one who operates behind the scenes, sometimes under the darkness of night, but they tried to do everything possible to hide their sin. A robber, on the other hand, doesn't care about the place or the time. They simply take what they want, whenever they want, and are not concerned about being seen publicly. But you see, Judas wanted to keep his sin hidden. But don't we all? Judas wanted to embezzle the money because he was the treasurer of the bunch and he kept the common purse for them and he was the one responsible for dispersing the funds to pay the bills that that Jesus and the twelve would incur. And this, of course, was before the days of treasurer's reports, and so um, no one kept track of that because they all expected that anyone who follows Jesus can be trusted, right? I mean, everyone who's a Jesus follower is certainly trustworthy, or so the assumption goes. But there's yet another principle here for us to be reminded of this morning. You see, the love of money Uh, has ruined many people. One of the fascinating things about the teaching of Jesus was that we discover that when you divide the teachings of Jesus topically, he talked about money more than any other particular subject. There were numerous parables. uh, Some of the teaching that he gave. For example, he, he warned in Matthew 6, he, he warned, you can't serve God and money. He told the rich young ruler, sell everything that you possess and give the money to the poor, and then come and follow me. Rich young ruler, he, he, he just he couldn't do it. And so Jesus had a lot to say about money, and Judas heard a lot of the teaching that Jesus gave on the subject of money and greed and such, but he, he repeatedly disregarded those warnings concerning hypocrisy and greed. And so it's becoming increasingly clear as we look at Judas this morning that he was following Jesus for selfish motives Instead of seeing Jesus for who he truly was, the Jesus who we sang about this morning as the one who could forgive sin, he wanted something else from Jesus. He wanted to profit. He had a different agenda than than God had. And it was an agenda that was in his own heart. So with greed as an ulterior motive, if you read through the gospel accounts, you find that it was this passion for greed and the humiliation that came by being rebuked by Jesus in front of all of the disciples and close friends that it was immediately after this that Judas begins to seek out the Sanhedrin to determine how Jesus could be betrayed, and how he could benefit from it financially. Well, the end of the passage, as we wrap up this morning, is what Jesus did 
how did Jesus respond? Well, Jesus does two things. He, he gave both a defense and a commendation. Now, I'm going to flip over and just listen to these words. It's from Mark chapter 14, but just listen because it's a slightly expanded verse or a few verses of what Jesus says to her in Matthew, excuse me, Mark 14, verses 6 through 9. Listen again to the words of Jesus. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be also told in memory of her. Hello, we're reading the memory of her right now, 2000. Years later, almost. And so we find that Jesus defended Mary's actions, and he commended her for what she did. Jesus was the recipient of the honor, and it was his right and his right alone to judge whether this was done out of a heart that was filled with gratitude as contrasted to the heart filled with deceit. And greed of Judas. You see, the principle here is the same principle that comes from Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. You see, what we ought to be doing is judging our own heart, not the heart of someone else. Now, we do have a right and a responsibility to judge sinful actions, But you know, no one knows our hearts, save God alone. And Jesus perceived that Mary's act of worship was one of of acknowledgement that he was going to die and be buried, and that she had done a beautiful, beautiful thing. It was a pure act of love. In fact, I want to leave you with an illustration that talks about this public and spontaneous and sacrificial and lavish act that was done without embarrassment. I know that every one of us uh, who are here this morning, I I think this is a fairly safe assumption, if, if not all, most of us, we've been to a funeral. And usually at a funeral, we find that around a casket, or if it's a memorial service, it's, there may not be a casket there, but there are there's still large arrangements of flowers. Now, my, my first wife died in the year 2001. Maybe that's why I saw this passage in such a different light. But I remember walking in to the service... And, and there were tons, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating, there must have been 30 different flower arrangements that were there. Some were huge. 
have no idea how much money was spent. But I've walked, as, as many of the people do who go to funerals, I walked around and I looked at the cards on them and I thought, I haven't heard from this person for years. I hated to admit it, but sometimes I had to, I had to ask someone else in the family, who, who is this person? And, and so you see, what, what we do is we send flowers after someone dies. Now, I, I understand the flowers are sent as an encouragement to the living. But then what happened next was after we went to this site where my wife was buried, I saw the funeral director take the flowers, hundreds of dollars worth, if not thousands of dollars worth of flowers, and he just stacked them up on the gravesite. And there they laid to rot. Some were given away to friends and family. But I want to leave you with this in closing. What Mary did was she gave Jesus the flowers before he died. Now, my second wife, Betsy, is here with me this morning. Betsy and I have been married nine plus years. And if I were to say to Betsy, Betsy, I, I love you so much that when you die, for every year that we've been married, I'm going to put a dozen red roses at the, at the service for you. For every year that we, a dozen of the most beautiful red roses. Do you think that would really bless her heart? I don't think so. Especially because she's a florist. <laughs> you see, God desires authentic Christian worship and living now. We, we, we don't care about what is said in our eulogy. We don't care what is said in the memorial service. He wants us to know the joy of living authentically in Christ right here, right now. And he's given us his word, he's given us his spirit, and his work on the cross is finished. And he says, get about the king's business right here, right now. Who do you resonate with in that story? Would you say I identify most with Martha, just kind of hanging out in the shadows, busy doing other things, making the meal? Or do you resonate with a Mary who you know that your motives of your heart, but sometimes uh, they're pure, but sometimes you get misunderstood. Sometimes you get criticized for no good reason. That hurts. Maybe you would look at your life and say, you know, I, I, really, I really am doing these things as an authentic act of worship for my Lord. Or would you say, boy, Jim, now I know what you mean. I see a lot of Judas in me that I really don't like. Or maybe you're like the rest of the disciples and you're jumping on somebody's bandwagon that's going someplace and you have no idea where they're taking you. Now the problem with that is that every one of us are accountable for our own 
actions and our own choices. And so if I'm going to make a wrong decision, I'd rather it be my decision instead of just jumping on somebody else's platform or position. So who do you resonate with? And how well are you doing at the authentic Christian life? Would you pray with me, please, as we close? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, first of all, that we even have this opportunity for an op- just, just the opportunity to live authentically in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for the resources that you've given us, a church. You've given us other believers. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us years and years of wisdom of others who have gone before us and already walked this journey. And so, Father, help us to look into the mirror of the Word of God and know that the person who is looking back at us is a person who is committed to being authentic in their Christian life. No hidden agendas. No deceit. No lies. No greed. But Father, simply a heart that is filled with worship and gratitude for the work of our Savior. We pray this for your glory and our own good in Jesus' name.